I'm, I'm Talbot Davis, and I'm the pastor here at Good Shepherd Church, and this is the Christmas Eve celebration of what we've been talking about called Wish List, and today's message in, in the Wish List series is to remove all doubt. And it's going to be one of those messages that jumps around a little bit in the Bible, so you'll want to keep your eyes up on the screen. I'll show you where all of that comes from, because before I start, let's pray. So God, thank you for your word, and thank you for the, the celebration that we enjoy, and thank you for the generations in this place. Uh, thank you for the generations tuning in, and thank you for the generations in the living room as well. And, and I ask that you would fill me fresh and new and full with everything that's good and right and joyful about your spirit today. For in the strong and saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we have been talking about wish list through all the Sundays in December. We've been talking about what would, what would you get, what would you ask for if you could get anything you wanted for Christmas? What would be at the top of that wish list? And I know that for a lot of you, the answer to that question, especially on Christmas Eve, is you, you'd like to be sure. You'd, you'd like to know. Because frankly, when it, when it comes to, to Christmas Eve and this celebration, some of you are a lot like Larry King, the late Larry King. Hello, remember Larry King? And, and when he got asked one time, if you could ask God any question you could possibly ask him, what would you ask him? And Larry King's answer to that question was, did you have a son? Did a virgin have a baby? Is Christmas the way they have been telling us it is all this time? Because honestly, in the way Larry King thought, if this story about how Jesus started his life is true, then everything else about his life matters as well. And when you think about it, if a woman who was never touched by a man had a baby, then everything about that baby's life matters and supremely so. So really for a lot of you, if you could have anything you wanted, this or any Christmas, you would like to have God, in a sense, remove all doubt. Because some of you, some of you, you want to believe You'd like, you know some people, you, you know some people who really do believe and, and you've seen sort of the glow on their face and the serenity that they, that they bring to life and, and, and you know the difference that believing makes in their life and, and part of you w would like some of that in your life. But, but then deep down, a deeper part of a lot of you, whether you're tuning in, whether you're here in the room, a lot of you, you, you kind of... You think about this story about a virgin having a baby who grows up and he's really God in the flesh and it seems so improbable, unlikely, implausible. And, and for a lot of you, you've relegated it sort of the realm to the realm of Jack and the Beanstalk or Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. It's a fable. It's a nice story with a good meaning. But as far as actually happening, no, this wasn't really some sort of invasion of planet Earth. It's a, it's a nice story with a, with a pleasant meeting. Even my mom, 
years and years and years ago was talking to my sister, because sometimes this stuff happens in church. And my mom was talking to my sister, who was about 14 at the time, and, and my mom said to my four, then 14-year-old sister, oh, Charlotte, the church doesn't really expect you to, the church doesn't really expect you to believe in the virgin birth. It's just a nice story. This, and my mom at that time was in charge of the Sunday school at that church. <laughs> I kid you not. So my goodness, you got, you got things like that in church. You got sort of your natural suspicions. And then I know a lot of you, you done went to college. And when you went to that, their college, you went to that religion class or you went to that philosophy class and they poked so many holes, not only in this story, but in all of the stories that it seems like all the cool kids don't believe anymore. And so you are here in this place. A lot of you are here as, as yet another step in your parents' frankly failed attempt to pass the faith on to you. And, and even if you want to believe, you just can't quite do it. So if you could have anything you wanted at, at, at Christmas Eve, you, you would have someone somewhere remove all doubt. Because you, you'd, you'd rather... You'd rather know than just hope. You'd rather be sure than just think you'd like to know. And it's so interesting. As we think for just a couple of minutes about, well, can you really know this stuff? Can you really know this happened? Or do you just have to take a blind leap of faith and believe it all? And, and, and as we think through the, this question for just a couple of moments, it's so interesting how the different biblical authors tell the story of Jesus's birth. They do it so very differently. There's not collusion between them. First of all, as, as a lot of you know, especially those of you who went to college and had someone poke holes in all of it, there's four biographies of Jesus's life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And out of those four, only two, Matthew and Luke, only two bother to tell us anything about his birth at all. Mark's in way too big a hurry telling his story, and John starts in outer space, and so it's really only Matthew and only Luke, and some of the details are, are just so random with the details they include. Like, like look at what Luke does when, when this, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 44, and we're going to throw it up on the screen, and, and this is a scene where... Mary is pregnant with Jesus and she goes to visit her pregnant cousin Elizabeth and she's carrying a baby in her womb who's going to grow up to be John the Baptist. And, and they're talking, I, I, you know, I don't know what two pregnant ladies do when they're talking to each other, but they're talking. And look at what Elizabeth says to Mary. As so, what she's saying to Mary. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, that's John the Baptist, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's the in utero leap. This wasn't just a kick. This is a real in utero leap. And what a strange, odd, bizarre detail to include. It, it doesn't really advance the story. It's just in the story. And then you move ahead a, a, a little bit when, when Mary and Joseph actually go to Bethlehem, a little bit more familiar terrain for a whole lot of you. And look at what happens in Luke chapter two, verses six and seven. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she, meaning Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, 
a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for There was no room in the inn. Again, notice the, the details, the delicate way the story is told. They took the baby, wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Such particular attention to the minutest details. And the same thing happens just a few verses later, verse 13, talking, talking about what happens with the shepherds and the angels. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them, meaning the shepherds, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, what in the world just happened to us? No, they didn't say that. They, we would have said that. They said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that, the Lord, that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off. Again, notice the detail. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, verse 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed and were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. And then look at verse 19. But Mary... Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Again, this incredible detail. We know what's going on inside Mary's mind. And then, and then just a, a little bit later in, in, in Luke's book, but a lot later in Jesus's life, Jesus is 30, getting ready to start his public, public ministry. And Luke throws the most amazing shade at Joseph. Take a look at what it says. Luke chapter 3. And verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. See, that's why I just told you it was later and Jesus was 30. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Eli. He was the son, so it, who's your daddy? Because it's not him. He was the son, so it was thought everybody thought wrong such a random detail and speaking of those kind of details Matthew again throws in the, kind of the most seemingly irrelevant actually kind of awkward detail for us when he's talking about Mary and Joseph look at what Matthew says in chapter 1 verse 25 talking about Joseph but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And I'm like, Matthew, did you really have to tell us that? Did, did we open up the Bible to learn about the most intimate parts of the lives of the Bible's heroes? Why do you include these details that kind of make us squirm? Really, really, it, it, it all calls to, to my mind at least one more really obscure detail. And this isn't by Matthew and it's not by Luke, it's by Mark. The same Mark who's in such a hurry that he doesn't even tell us the story of Jesus's birth. And later, much later in, in Mark's story in Jesus's life, the night that Jesus was on trial, Mark throws in the story of the first naked guy in the Bible since Adam. It's amazing. L look at what Mark says. Chapter 14, verses 51 and 52 says this. A young man, this is Jesus is on trial for his life. And a young man wearing nothing but a linen Garment, why are you going out wearing only a sheet, son? <laughs> wearing only a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind, but making his behind visible for all to see. 
I might have added that, that last part. But So wh- wh- why that kind of detail? And, 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 and in the case of that one, m- many people think that this is Mark's way of letting his readers know, I was there, naked, but present. These things that I'm telling you about, this story that I'm relaying are reliable because I was there and in person. And when I realized that about how Mark tells the story and how Matthew and Luke tells the story, and why do we get these odd details that that don't really propel the story, but they do validate it. It's genius. It's brilliant. It's the biblical author's way of saying this stuff happened. This isn't made up. This isn't some kind of fantasy. This isn't some kind of fable. I know that this stuff happened because I saw this. I heard this. I know this detail. Who would make this stuff up? These things happened as I am telling you the authors say, and it's not a fable that someone invented. It is an invasion of planet Earth. We don't read these stories as poetry. We're recording them as history. And so when you realize all that, when you realize, oh, I've been lulled into thinking all this time that the really smart, the really sophisticated people are the ones who doubt all this stuff. When you realize how the inspired authors who wrote the Bible are a whole lot smarter than you and then I are. Can I hear an amen to that? You realize the most amazing thing, that that Christmas doesn't necessarily remove all doubts, it does something better. It gets you to doubt your doubts. Yeah, we've been thinking that all the sophisticated, all the smart people stopped believing a long time ago and are filled with doubt and Christmas comes along and with these details that it's laid before us, it says to us, take all those doubts, all those ways that you think you're too smart to believe the story, hold them up to the light of day and begin to doubt your doubts and you you will see how self-absorbed and self-centered your doubts really are. You got your wish list at Christmas and you get to that place where you can doubt your doubts. I, I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way and, and probably not because it's my life and not yours, but <laughs> as a preacher, I'm often riddled with doubts. Always, oh, oh like all, my 30 years of being a pastor, every so often I'll be like, is this stuff really true? Am, am I just leading a large group of people towards irrelevance? Am I I just doing this because it's comfortable? But Christmas helps me, Christmas helps me hold, not, not the facts of the story, help me hold my doubts up to the light of day. And to see that if I were ultimately to say, no, I am now, I am now too smart to believe in the gospel anymore. You know what I would give up? I would give up that incredible assurance that I have been chased and caught and kept. That given my background, there's no reason that I should be a Christian. My mom might have led Sunday school in that church before I was born, but after I was born, she never went again. It's like, I have this kid, now I'm not going to church anymore. No, that's not exactly what, but she didn't, I did not grow up in church. There's no reason I should be a believer, but God chased me, caught me kept me, I'd be giving that up. I'd 
I'd be giving up that sense that, that I am loved, not because of anything I've done to earn it, but because of who God is to give it. I'd be giving up. I'd be giving up the, a, a, like a purpose in life, a reason for being. I know me well enough to know that if it were not for Jesus chasing me and catching me and keeping me, I would be hollow and I would be cynical and I would be addicted and I would be empty. And sometimes when you realize who you would be without him, it makes you fall in love with him all over again. And if I were to turn my back on the gospel, I, I would have this incredible fear of missing out on eternity. It may sound kind of cheap or flimsy, but the truth remains, the, the, the truth remains that life here on this side of the grave only makes sense when you know where you're going there on the other side of it. And, and, and because of this face, when, when, when Jesus chased me, caught me, and keeps me, he gives me that assurance of, of where I am headed after I die. Not because I'm trusting in my own goodness, because I'm not all that good, but because I'm trusting in his greatness, and his greatness is absolutely perfect. Begin to doubt your doubts. Because, again, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. We, 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 think, we think doubts because we heard about them in college and philosophy classes and religion classes. And so we think it's really sophisticated. But really, most of our doubts in the final analysis are kind of self-centered and self-absorbed. Because I don't know if you've considered this, but most people don't think their way into their doubts. They behave their way there. Meaning, relatively, relatively few people look at all the evidence and say, no, I decide intellectually, I don't believe that there is a God who created the world and is saving and loving that world in Jesus. I just, the evidence doesn't bear weight and I don't believe anymore. That almost never happens. It's much more typical that people behave their way into their doubts, meaning they got stuff they want to keep doing or stuff they don't want to start doing. And if any kind of God would get in the way of any of the things that they want to keep doing or they, want to, they don't want to start doing, they don't believe in that God. I might be speaking to five or 10 or 25 or 150 people just like that right now. And if that's you, and if, and if you're here because your parents are giving you one more effort, giving it one old college try to get you to believe again, Christmas doesn't remove all doubts. It just does something a lot better. It gets you to doubt your doubts. A little bit, a little bit like what happened with my friend from Houston, Texas. Can I hear an amen for Texas? <laughs> from Houston, Texas, a friend named Eric Huffman, who for 13 years was a United Methodist pastor and didn't believe the gospel he was proclaiming, an atheist preacher. And we want you to hear from him to see what happened. Hey there, Good Shepherd. It's such an honor to be a part of your Christmas Eve celebrations this year. I wanted to share a little bit of my story with you. Um, I've been a pastor in the Methodist Church for over 20 years now. But uh, I have to admit that for the first 13 or so of those years, I was not really a Christian. 
I called myself a Christian, but I was really adjacent to Christianity. I was a cultural Christian because I took the parts of Jesus that were comfortable to me, his, his politics as I understood them, his social principles and his platform, and I wanted to apply those to my life. But the supernatural stuff, you know, the, the miracles, uh, the demons and casting them out and, and the resurrection especially, I assumed to, be, to have been fabricated by some of his followers who were really zealous and, and after he died, they just didn't want to let him go. So they made a God out of him. That was my theology in those days, even though I was a pastor and I'm not proud of it now, it's just the truth. Well, all of that changed in 2013 when I had an opportunity to visit the Holy Land for the first time. And the day that I visited along with the rest of my tour, uh, the, the little village of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, everything changed and nothing's been the same since. The thing that I saw there that changed my life forever wasn't the typical uh, tourist sites, but our guide took us down into this archeological dig site where one of the earliest Christian churches met in a house. I mean, we're talking early uh, part of the first century after Jesus died, these people were gathering to worship together. And that's not a surprise either, but what really shocked my skeptical heart then and what really woke me up were the etchings on the walls of this first century house church where these Christians who knew Jesus, these were the ones who knew him in the flesh and walked with him and worked with him. And, and some of them probably were related to him in some ways because it was a tight knit community in those days. They worshiped Jesus and wrote on the walls uh, words of their devotion to him, like Lord Jesus Christ, God Jesus Christ, save us Jesus. Well, why would they be worshiping a man that they knew who had been executed on a Roman cross? Why would devout Jews especially be worshiping any man at all, much less a dead one? Well, the only explanation I could come to that day is that those people really saw Jesus in the flesh days after his crucifixion. When they knew he was dead and gone, he showed up again, fulfilling the promises that he had made to them. And in fact, that the prophets of old, centuries before, had made before Jesus even walked the earth. And I was shaken. The ground beneath my feet began to shake. I felt it tremble because I knew that all of my assumptions had to be called into question. This idea that I could be the master of my own domain or, or my own destiny and future, or the, the idea that I was God, it all had to be rethought. And on my flight, on the way home from the Holy Land, I had a come to Jesus meeting there too. And I realized that nothing could be the same after this because it's more plausible than not given all the evidence to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is exactly who he said he was, not just some teacher or a gifted prophet, but God in the flesh. And if that's true, then that's what Christmas really means. And if that's true, then that's all we really need to know because nothing can ever be the same. If Jesus came not only to live and to teach, but to die and to rise, nothing can be the same. Merry Christmas.